All right, Mr. Ken Lane, whenever you're ready, we're going to sing a few of these songs. We hope you enjoy them. Yeah, we hope you enjoy them. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. What are you staring at? Braziers. I dig abroad with no braziers. This is a recording from 1962 of Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. performing in a club outside Chicago. And like everything else about Frank Sinatra, what's fascinating about this recording is how many different people he's able to be all at once. Cutting up on the one hand and then turning around and singing the most vulnerable possible love songs on the other. When you're alone Who cares for starlit skies Where does it hurt, baby? When you're alone Not three minutes later, he's lashing into a gossip columnist he hates, Dorothy Kilgallen. I never met a, a, I mean, I've met many, many male finks, but I never met a female fink until I met Dorothy Kilgallen. How's that for an opener? (laughs) I wouldn't mind if she was a good-looking fink. That such beautiful music should emerge from such vulgarity is one of life's great mysteries, the Washington Star once wrote. The town where she came from, they had a beauty contest when she was 17 years old. And nobody won. There was a poor little Chinese kid. The boy was standing there. There was nobody else that gave him the cup because he was better looking on the broads than the line. Then there's the way he is on stage with Sammy Davis Jr. In 1962, it was still groundbreaking for a mainstream white performer to be integrating his nightclub act at all. But a good portion of the act is just Sinatra and Martin telling Davis to get off the stage and Davis pleading with them to stay. Do you ask me out here, can I sing with you guys? Hey, a couple hey, of, you know. Hey, 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 hey. I'll dance with you. I'll sing with you. I'll swim with you. I'll cut the lawn with you. I'll go to bar mitzvahs with you. But don't touch me. Half century after this was recorded, I think what's most uh, striking about it is how many of the jokes are simply about the fact that a black man is on stage with these white guys. I'm going to play you a a big chunk of this because it's amazing. The jokes they make, what the jokes are about, how bare the whole thing is. Well, now that you're out here, you might as well do something. Might as well leave. (laughs) Hey, how come he got a white stool? I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, may I offer some impersonations for you nice folks? Sam, that's a good idea. Why don't you do Paul Revere, get on your horse and get the hell out of here. I tell you what, do James Meredith in Mississippi. Ladies and gentlemen, my first impression, that of Mr. Frank Sinatra. When somebody loves you, 
It's no good unless she loves you. Oh, Louise. And if you like him, you're going to be cuckoo about me. <laughs> He's just, you'll excuse the expression, a carbon copy. Sammy Davis Jr. takes a breath and launches into his next impression. Mr. Nat King Cole. Through the good lean years, yes and all, those in-between years. You notice he does his people better than he does ours? <laughs> oh. Because we're born with a natural sense of rhythm, you nitwit. That's Sammy Davis Jr. saying that. Hope I'm not out of line, Frank. <laughs> Hope I'm not out of line, Frank. Then he says, We just sit around all day eating chicken and watermelon. Yuck, 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 yuck. <laughs> I hope it's clear this is Sammy Davis Jr. pushing back at Frank, calling out what's happening with his friend. When Sammy Davis Jr. finally sings a duet with Sinatra, it's a duet between a black man and a white man that is unimaginable to hear you cannot imagine this being performed today by a black man and a white man together except in some deeply ironic context this is a duet that they performed for years together me and my shadow I'm me closer than pages that's speaking of mine we're closer than my shadow wherever you find me you'll find me just like Closer than a miser or the bloodhounds to Liza me. Closer than smog is to all of and L.A. Closer than Bobby is to JFK. In Frank Sinatra, we see the history of the 20th century. In Frank Sinatra, the Chicago writer named Rennie Sparks put it, we don't just see a man, we see every man. Here's Rennie. He's a frail boy crooner in a floppy bow tie. He's a thug smashing his fist through a wall when his shirts come back with too much starch. And he's a bewildered old man falling off his stool during my way. Shirley MacLaine says he let her stick her gum behind his ear during takes of Some Came Running. But he also liked to grab an ice cube from his drink, thrusting it in the palm of a gaga fan and snarling, Here, go skate around on it. I wish someone would hurt you, he told Shirley, so I could kill them for you. But today on our program, of course, the chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra. This weekend marks his 100th birthday. He was born December 12th, 1915. And today's program is one that we first broadcast a year before Sinatra died. He died back in 1998. As you'll hear, this show sounds different in certain ways from the shows we do today, but in lots of ways not so different. This show is an appreciation of Frank Sinatra, but it is also, even more than that, I think, a bunch of people trying to make sense of Sinatra. We have Gay Talese, Michael Ventura. We have Sarah Val making a plea to television executives everywhere. We have a quick history lesson for all of you who right now are saying, really, Sinatra, that's what we're doing? Really? Stay with us, Pally. Hey! 
Aquan, Frank Sinatra has a cold. So Frank Sinatra's at his peak in the 1950s up through the middle of the 1960s. Those are the years of his greatest recordings. Those are the years of the Rat Pack, the iconic defining years for him. And to see inside the life that he led during those years, during his heyday, one of the best accounts is by journalist Gay Talese. It was first published in Esquire magazine in 1966. It's called Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. It is also one of the most famous magazine stories ever written, or anyway, famous among journalists, because Talese managed to do this complicated portrait of Sinatra without ever interviewing Sinatra. Sinatra refused to talk to him. So Talese talked to all the people around Sinatra and watched Sinatra. So this is this uh, long, great story with many, many scenes. We only have time for an excerpt here, which Gay Talese agreed to read for us. Frank Sinatra, holding a glass of bourbon in one hand and a cigarette in the other, stood in a dark corner of a bar between two attractive but fading blondes who sat waiting for him to say something. But he said nothing. He had been silent during much of the evening, except now in this private club in Beverly Hills he seemed even more distant, staring out through the smoke and the semi-darkness into a large room beyond the bar where dozens of young couples sat huddled around small tables or twisted in the center of the floor to the clamorous clang of folk rock music blaring from the stereo. The two blondes knew, as did Sinatra's four male friends who stood nearby, that it was a bad idea to force conversation upon him when he was in this mood of sullen silence, a mood that had hardly been uncommon during this first week of November, a month before his 50th birthday. Sinatra had been working in a film that he now disliked and could not wait to finish. He was tired of all the publicity attached to his dating the 20-year-old Mia Farrell, who was not in sight tonight. He was angry that a CBS television documentary of his life, to be shown in two weeks, was reportedly prying into his privacy, even speculating on his possible friendships with mafia leaders. He was worried about his starring role in an hour-long NBC show entitled Sinatra, A Man and His Music, which would require that he sing 18 songs with a voice that at this particular moment, just a few nights before the taping was to begin, was weak and sore and uncertain. Sinatra was ill. He was a victim of an ailment so common that most people would consider it trivial. But when it gets to Sinatra, it can plunge him into a state of anguish and deep depression, panic, even rage. Frank Sinatra had a cold. Sinatra with a cold is Picasso without paint, Ferrari without fuel, only worse. For the common cold robs Sinatra of that uninsurable jewel, his voice, cutting into the core of his confidence, and it affects not only his own psyche, but also seems to cause a kind of psychosomatic nasal drip within dozens of people who work for him, drink with him, depend on him for their own welfare and stability. A Sinatra with a cold can, in a small way, send vibrations through the entertainment industry and beyond, as surely as a president of the United States suddenly sick can shake the national economy. For Frank Sinatra was now involved with many things involving many people. His own film company, his record company, his private airline, his missile parts firm, his real estate holdings across the nation, his personal staff of 75, which are only a portion of the power he is and has come to represent. He now seemed to be also the embodiment of the fully emancipated male, perhaps the only one in America, the man who can do anything he wants, anything, can do it because he has the money, the energy, and no apparent guilt. All the way, all or nothing at all. 
This is the Sicilian in Sinatra. He permits his friends, if they wish to remain that, none of the easy Anglo-Saxon outs. But if they remain loyal, then there is nothing Sonata will not do for them. Fabulous gifts, personal kindnesses, encouragement when they're down, adulation when they're up. They are wise to remember, however, one thing. He is Sinatra, the boss, il padrone. Or better still, he is what in traditional Sicily have long been called uomini rispettati, men of respect, men who are both majestic and humble, men who are loved by all and are very generous by nature, men whose hands are kissed as they walk from village to village, men who would personally go out of their way to redress a wrong. Frank Sinatra does things personally. At Christmas time, he will personally pick dozens of presents for his close friends and family, remembering the type of jewelry they like, their favorite colors, the size of their shirts and dresses. The same Sinatra can, within the same hour, explode in a towering rage of intolerance to a small thing being correctly done for him by one of his paisanos. For example, when one of his men brought him a frankfurter with ketchup on it, which Sinatra apparently abhors, he angrily threw the bottle at the man, splattering ketchup all over him. In Las Vegas, after the last show at the Sands, the Sinatra crowd, which numbered about 20, all got into a line of cars and headed for another club. It was 3 o'clock. The night was young. They stopped at the Sahara, taking a long table near the back, and listened to a bald-headed little comedian named Don Rickles, who was probably more caustic than any other comic in the country. His humor is so rude and such bad taste that it offends no one because it's too offensive to be offensive. Spotting Eddie Fisher among the audience, Rickles proceeded to ridicule him as a lover, saying it was no wonder that he could not handle Elizabeth Taylor. And when two businessmen in the audience acknowledged that they were Egyptians, Rickles cut into them and their country's policy toward Israel. And he strongly suggested that the woman seated at one table with her husband was actually a hooker. When the Sinatra crowd walked in, Don Rickles could not be more delighted. Pointing to Sinatra's pal, Jilly Rizzo, Rickles yelled, How's it feel to be Frank's tractor? Yeah, yeah, Jilly keeps walking in front of Frank, clearing the way. Then, nodding to Leo DeRocher, a former baseball player, Rickles said, Stand up, Leo. Show Frank how you slide. Then he focused on Sinatra, not failing to mention Mia Farrell, nor that he was wearing a toupee, nor to say that Sinatra was washed up as a singer. And when Sinatra laughed, everybody laughed. And Rickles pointed toward Joey Bishop and said, Bishop keeps checking with Frank to see what's funny. Then after Rickles told some Jewish jokes, Dean Martin stood up and yelled, Hey, you're always talking about the Jews, never about the Italians. And Rickles cut him off. What do we need the Italians for? All they do is keep the flies off our fish. Sinatra laughed. They all laughed. And Rickles went on this way for nearly an hour until Sinatra, standing up, said, All right, all right. Come on, get this thing over with. I gotta go. Shut up and sit down, Rickles yelled. I've had to listen to you sing. Who do you think you're talking to, Sinatra yelled. Dick Hames, Rickles replied, and Sinatra laughed again. And then Dean Martin, pouring a bottle of whiskey over his head, entirely drenching his tuxedo, pounded the table. By 4 a.m., Frank Sinatra led the group out of the Sahara, some of them carrying their glasses of whiskey with them, sipping it along the sidewalk and into the cars, 
and then returning to the sands, they walked into the gaming casino. It was still packed with people. The roulette wheels were spinning, the crapshooters were screaming in the far corner. Frank Sinatra, holding a shot glass of bourbon in his left hand, walked through the crowd. He, unlike some of his friends, was perfectly pressed, his tuxedo tie precisely pointed, his shoes unsmudged. He never seems to lose his dignity, never lets his guard completely down, no matter how much he is drunk, nor how long he's been up. He never sways when he walks like Dean Martin, nor does he dance in the aisles or jump up on the tables like Sammy Davis. A part of Sinatra, no matter where he is, is never there. There's always a part of him, though sometimes a small part, that remains il padrone. The crowd that had gathered around him now opened to let him through. But a woman stopped in front of him, handing him a piece of paper. He signed it, and then he said, thank you. In the rear of the sands, large dining room was a long table reserved for Sinatra. The dining room was fairly empty at this hour, with perhaps two dozen other people in the room, including a table of four unescorted young ladies sitting near Sinatra. On the other side of the room, at a long table, sat seven men shoulder to shoulder against the wall, two of them wearing dark glasses, all of them eating quietly, speaking hardly a word, just sitting and eating and missing nothing. The Sinatra party, after getting settled and having a few more drinks, ordered something to eat. The table was about the same size as the one reserved for Sinatra whenever he's at Jilly's in New York, and the people seated around this table in Las Vegas were mainly the same people who are often seen with Sinatra at Jilly's restaurant in New York, or at a restaurant in California, or in Italy, or in New Jersey, wherever Sinatra happens to be. When Sinatra sits to dine, his trusted friends are close. And no matter where he is, no matter how elegant the place may be, there's something of the neighborhood showing because Sinatra, no matter how far he has come, is still something of the boy from the neighborhood. Only now, he can take his neighborhood with him. In some ways, the quasi-family affair at the reserve table in a public place is the closest thing Sinatra now has to home life. Gaitalese, reading an excerpt from Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. A quick Google search, you can read the full thing online. Back to One Sinatra Fan versus All of Network Television. So as I said earlier, for Frank Sinatra's 100th birthday, we're bringing you an old show that we made back when Sinatra was still alive first broadcast a year before his death. He died in 1998. And in our original broadcast, one of our contributors, Sarah Val, made a plea to television newscasters. Her plea was simple. She said, when Frank Sinatra dies, please, please do not use the song My Way to commemorate his death. Don't let that be the soundtrack to the video montage you broadcast in tribute. She was sure that's what they were going to do. When the guy who generously gave us greats like I Get a Kick Out of You kicks it, we won't put on our bassy boots or get a load of those cuckoo things he's been saying. We'll be bored terrifically, screaming at the TV set every time he and that sappy string section face the final curtain. And now... A few weeks ago, here on the radio program, I went on a little rant about one of the lyrics to the song My Way. But Sarah's problem with My Way was much more fundamental than mine. Basically, she said it doesn't have any of the qualities of the great Sinatra songs. It doesn't swing. It doesn't break your heart. It's sappy. It's boring. It's even a little whiny. 
Anyway, here's more of Sarah. The only way my way has ever worked is if the person singing it is dumber than the song, which is why the only successful rendition of it was perpetrated by Sid Vicious. Frank, and Elvis for that matter, was always too complicated, too full of rhythmic freedom to settle into the song's simplistic selfishness. My Way pretends to speak up for self-possession and personal vision when really it only calls forth the temper tantrums of two-year-olds. Or perhaps the last word spoken to Eva Braun. Remember the stories from Belgrade how each night when the government-controlled evening news aired, the townspeople blew whistles or banged on pots and pans so they wouldn't hear the state's lies? Keep that beautiful action in mind when Sinatra's dead and all the TVs in your more boring democratic world are playing my way. Drown it out. Play something else to the montage in your own heart. Or just turn off the TV sound. Have your stereo queued up and ready to go. He could keel over any second. I mean, he might not even make it through this hour-long radio show. Be prepared. Why not play Angel Eyes for its subtle reference to the singer's Mediterranean windows to the soul, for its knowing, jaunty adieu? Excuse me while I... Disappear. Hear how great that would work under all those post-war black and white snapshots. How that nice Christian harp outro hints at Frank's unlikely salvation. Let's all listen again. Excuse me while I I admit this may not be quite stupid and obvious enough for network television, so if the staff of the Today Show is hearing my voice right now, here's another suggestion. That's life. That's what all the people say You're riding high in April Shot down in May If Angel Eyes is all periods and pauses, this song is all exclamation points. Picture, please, Good Morning America staffers. Quick cut shots of Sinatra with Ava Gardner. Sinatra with daughter Nancy at age five. Sinatra with Kennedy. Sinatra with some mob boss no one will recognize anyway over these lyrics. I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king. I've been up and down and over and out. And I know one thing. Each time I find myself flat on my face, I pick myself up and get back. In the race, that's life. That's life. I tell you. It's really a terrible choice. Just as corny as my way, but at least it's got a little bit of the old ring a ding ding. It swings. This is my ABMY vote. Anything but my way. 
As for me, when I hear the big news, I'm tempted to think I'll be cranking up my favorite Sinatra side, Come Dance With Me, but it's too disrespectfully cheerful to work as a dirge, and kind of creepy if taken literally. Who except Tom Petty wants to foxtrot with a corpse? I've decided instead to blare the Capitol recording of Cole Porter's What Is This Thing Called Love? It's the driving question behind the entire Sinatra research project, and it's a lovely pop song, suitably melancholy for mourning, reflective, and wise. The orchestra starts off low. Enter a clarinet that's somehow lewd and ponderous at the same time, Frank scrawls the topic sentence, then repeats it, adding one word, this funny thing called love. It begins as a rhetorical question and by the end turns into a cosmic inquiry of God. What is this thing called love? This funny thing Just who can solve its mystery? And why should it make a fool of me? Now, E.T. producers, are you paying attention? At the end of the song, Frank asks one more time, to the Lord in heaven above, just what is this thing called love? And then he cuts out as if he's off to face the creator in person. That's why I ask the Lord up in heaven above Just what is this thing called love? And then, once he's gone, the orchestra resolves to a sweet final chord, as if they have the answer, but Frank Sinatra's no longer around to hear it. Can't you just see the freeze frame? Frank in the recording studio, the capital years, the hat askew, the tie loosened. TV producers of America, I beg you, for all of us, for Frank. Ixnay on the my way. Excuse me now, while I disappear. And now, the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. Well, though Sarah Val's plea to network television was broadcast twice, twice in our program before Sinatra's death, his death on May 14, 1998, it had no effect whatsoever on television newscasters. Every network newscast used the song My Way in its network obituary. So much for the power of public radio to shape our nation's destiny. The one exception was ABC's Nightline. The night that Sinatra died, Nightline ended a special hour-long tribute they'd created to Sinatra by playing Sarah's radio story. 
In other words, the person who got the last word on American network news that day, the day of Sinatra's passing, was Sarah. Her essay has been collected in one of her many fine books, Take the Cannoli. Coming up, Frank Sinatra shifts through all of his different ages in one concert. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week, of course, we choose a theme, invite a variety of writers and performers to take a whack at that theme with fiction, nonfiction, radio monologues, whatever we can think of. And the subject of today's show, what, what was his name again? My name is Francis Albert. Francis Albert Sinatra. And I sing love songs, mostly after dark, mostly in saloons. Yes, you cannot have a career as long and distinguished as Frank Sinatra's without some experiments that fail. Witness Frank Sinatra's cover of Bad, Bad Leroy Brown or the Rod McEwen poetry he recorded. I can just about get through the day, but the night makes me nervous. Not for any reason, except maybe that it catches you unaware. And follows you the way a woman follows when she wants something. What? What is that? The night makes Frank Sinatra nervous? Frank Sinatra? But that is not what I'm really here to talk about here in Act 3. What I'm really here to talk about is not the failures of Frank Sinatra, but what makes Sinatra so special in the first place. And the answer is, From the time of his first big breakthrough as a solo singer in 1942, Frank Sinatra was more emotionally expressive, more vulnerable, more openly sensual than other male pop stars back then. He was a torch singer, a guy torch singer, who picked up moves from Billie Holiday. Sinatra said Holiday influenced his singing more than anybody. And then, in the 1950s, he didn't let go of all that, but he reinvented himself. After a career slump, after his second marriage with Ava Gardner broke up, He went into the studio to create records with a much tougher, more swinging sound than he'd done before. His public image became the character Frank Sinatra, who we know now, half tough guy, half sentimental saloon singer. And Nelson Riddle invented this sound for those albums with apparently heavy input from Sinatra. It's the sound of most of the songs that we think of today as Sinatra standards. Those fingers in my head that sly come hither stare That strips my conscience bare It's witchcraft Music writer Will Friedwald says that the sound that Riddle invented for Sinatra is built around bass trombone, flute, muted trumpet, and strings. And there's this lightness to the orchestration with a much more complicated mix of melodies, and counter-melodies on different instruments than other composers were using then, on pop records. Witness, for example, how Riddle used trumpeter Harry Sweets Edison. Essentially, he was not hired as a trumpeter to sit in the section, but he was hired strictly as a soloist or an obligatist. And he would not sit in the section, but he had his own 
uh, he would sit to the side and had his own special microphone. And so Sweets would just improvise these little trumpet fills here and there on the muted trumpet. And when he plays, he's only playing almost in between the breaths. Um, Well, as Gary Giddens points out, uh, Sweets essentially plays three kinds of solos. Beep, 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 and beep, beep, beep. Let me me play a little bit of this. He comes in uh, here, if I understand right, right after uh, Sinatra sings with People She'd Hate. She loves the theater, but never comes late. She'd never bother with people she'd hate. That's why the lady is a tramp. And he's going to come back again in a couple seconds. She'll have no crap games with Sharpies and Frost. And she won't go to Harlem in Lincoln's or Ford. And she won't dish the dirt. Which brings us to Act 4, the death of Frank Sinatra. Michael Ventura grew up in the 1950s in New York. I'm Sicilian on both sides of my family. And if you grew up as a Sicilian kid in the 50s in New York, it was like Sinatra was part of your family. Uh, He was the most famous uh, Italian, except for some baseball stars. Uh, Literally, just a figure people gossiped about and they listened to his songs and he was held up to me by my father as an example. You, You see him, he can spit in anybody's eye and get away with it. When Michael Ventura published a novel in 1996 called The Death of Frank Sinatra, Sinatra's people were not pleased. The book, however, is not literally about Frank Sinatra. It's about men like Michael Ventura, whose sense of style and sense of self came in part from Frank's style. What's it mean to you, The Death of Frank Sinatra? The death of a style. The death of the last and greatest embodiment of a kind of street elegance, a style that is particularly and indelibly 20th century and that we will not see again. Of course, he wrote his book long before hip-hop artists like Jay-Z adopted Sinatra as their own. Frank Sinatra himself only appears in this book once. In the scene that he's in, he's doing a concert. And one of the things that's interesting is that in a work of fiction, you know, Michael Ventura could choose to write about a Sinatra concert from any era Sinatra was alive. And Ventura decided on the mid-1990s, the last years of Sinatra's life. The reason why, he says, is because in The Old Man, you get Sinatra at all of his ages. You can still hear the young man and the middle-aged man and the old man, all of them, when he sang. Here's Ventura reading from that part of his book. As the old man walked out onto the stage, a curtain came up behind him to reveal a large orchestra. Every musician wore a tuxedo. The conductor was a small, round man sitting at a grand piano and wearing earphones. With the slash of the conductor's hand, the rhythm and brass burst into a loud, up-tempo number, and Sinatra flashed a smile that made him look uncannily young. A young smile in the old, pasty face— and his eyes were the same as they'd always been, brighter in person than they ever registered on screen. And like the smile, the eyes were young to the point of seeming unnatural. For though no makeup could conceal the sad ravages of the face, the eyes and the smile seemed untouched. As though to put his listeners at ease with these contradictions, Sinatra grabbed the microphone from the top of the black grand piano and sang about how they made him feel so young, 
These strangers in this room had that power. They made him feel so young, and he would feel that way even when he was old and gray. The song itself was keeping him alive. The first bars were the voice of the old man, raspy, worn, unable to hold notes for longer than a beat, and only his mastery of rhythm kept the song alive and made each word surprising. Surprising, though everyone in the room knew the lyrics by heart. Then, on a high note, the voice cracked, and for an instant the music soured, and the audience flinched as one person. But instead of retreating from that bad sound, Sinatra leaned into it. Sinatra bent the note further into a jazz-like harmony, and then instead of softening after the mistake, Sinatra held the new note longer and louder, as though diving into it, then took a quick breath and sang the next note louder still and fuller, until seamlessly for several bars it was the voice of thirty or forty years ago, full and unfettered, resonant and suggestive, until again it began to crack. And again he used the cracking to modulate back into the voice and style of the old man, on pitch but raw, one note per beat, sometimes right on the beat, sometimes just off it, keeping the performance tense until on the last note the young man's voice returned, as though saluting the old man who sang it, and Sinatra let that note ride, and the audience cheered. It was a breathless performance, like watching a trapeze artist work without a net. I lit my cigarettes like he did. I wore the kind of clothes he wore. I still do. I tried to stand as he stood. I tried to walk as he walked. I still do. Not because I was imitating him, but because I was imitating all the people who gave and taught me life and they took so many of their cues from him. And where had he taken his cues from? From peasants who came to America from an older, less sentimental world. Peasants who came with the intention of becoming aristocrats, and who almost as soon as they arrived began to stand and walk like those aristocrats they'd watched so closely, yet from afar, for generations. European princes had taught them grace. American streets taught them flair. They didn't need to learn violence from anyone. That they were born with. And Sinatra blended all this better than any, and sang as he did so. Sang of love and of pride, despairing of one and reveling in the other. And this was why Sicilians especially gave him respect, in the peculiar way Sicilians use that word, meaning homage, deference, consideration, and that invitation to betrayal, loyalty. Now Sinatra sang about how they, whoever they were, couldn't take that, whatever that was, away from him. That somehow in the way she held her hat and the way she sipped her tea was beyond the world's possibility to destroy or erode. There was a scrapbook of Sinatra's pictures. The pictures were all of Sinatra, but he was never alone. Sinatra with Lyndon Johnson, with Adlai Stevenson, with Eleanor Roosevelt. He was holding her hand and looking into her eyes. With Jack Kennedy, Bobby, Jackie, Nixon, Reagan, Nancy. And Sinatra with very different people. Sinatra with Johnny Rosselli, Paul Castellano, Carlo Gambino, Carlo's son Joey, Jimmy Fratriano, Sally Spatola. And still another kind, Sinatra with Marilyn Monroe, Lauren Bacall, Humphrey Bogart, Marlon Brando, Louis Armstrong, Elvis Presley, Duke Ellington. That man on the stage, that old man, was where it all connected. Who else had held the hand of Eleanor Roosevelt and shaken the hand of Carlo Gambino both and on equal terms? that man on the stage, that old man. And why? Because he could sing love songs like no one else, history of a kind. History transfixed by love songs. 
That's life. That's what all the people say the man is singing now. Some people get their kicks from stomping on a dream, but he don't let that get him down. And now he's singing that we're much too marvelous for words. The man was speaking now. I'm just waiting for a downbeat, not a bus. Where are you working tomorrow? The musicians laughed. The conductor, that little round man, laughed. That's my son, the guy with the earphones. I had to promise his mother I'd give the bum a job. More laughter. But something was wrong on the stage. The music was playing, but Sinatra wasn't singing. He was looking around as though he'd forgotten where he was. He started a lyric, then stopped. It didn't fit the music. He looked frightened, a scared boy in the body of an old man. He turned toward his son, whose presence seemed to remind him of who he was. He was Frank Sinatra. He was there to sing love songs to history. And he wheeled around and began to beg, but in the proudest terms, that luck be a lady tonight, and that she keep the party polite. But it had been an awful moment. He took a few steps, tried to recover. Slowly, he started to speak. I'm what they call a saloon singer. The song began. He's telling us to drink up, all we happy people. Nobody here looks very happy, but he's admitting that we're happier than him. He says he's paying for the drinks and the laughs. He's paying for everything, because a woman with angel eyes is gone. And she's really gone. He's not bitter. He's not angry at her. Those angel eyes had every right to look elsewhere. He asks us to excuse him, because he must disappear. And his voice is disappearing with him. A scratchy whisper like an old wax record played on an old machine. With unbearable politeness, with a tenderness close to death, the death of his voice, he is saying, Excuse me, I must disappear. There are no angel eyes left in the room. No reason to stay. We put one in every performance, if you've seen us perform before, and it's called the saloon song. I do one in each performance because somebody somewhere sometime dubbed me the saloon singer. So I don't want to disappoint him. And it's, it happens to have a lot of truth back to that, too, because when I was very young and I started working in joints in New Jersey and bars and grills and all kinds of places, until one day somebody came in and offered me a better job. Look what happened to me. Nothing. Drink up. Drink up all you people Order anything that you see And have fun, all you lovely people The drink and the laughs on me I try to think that love's not around Still it's uncomfortably near My poor old heart It's not gaining any ground Because my angel eye Act 5, Chairman of the Block. 
Now that Sinatra's dead and gone, I think uh, there's a kind of kitsch version of Sinatra that has replaced the real guy in lots of people's minds. The kitsch version is way less complicated, kind of a Vegas cartoon Rat Pack Sinatra. It leaves out the Billie Holiday side of Sinatra. It leaves out the raw vulnerability of Sinatra. It overlooks the originality of what he invented. So there's that kitsch Sinatra that's out there. And at the same time, there are a lot of people who really love Sinatra and remember Sinatra. We'll close today's uh, program with another story that we first broadcast years ago. This is about a man who loves Sinatra and how he used that love for a while to do something for his entire neighborhood, to spread the joy. One of his neighbors, Blake Gaskin, tells the story. I went out one Friday evening with a friend in the East Village, where we both live. On the street, we heard Frank Sinatra music blasting loud enough to wake the neighbors. Fairy tales can come true, it can happen to you. As we reached 4th Street, I saw a hundred people huddled around the stoop of a six-floor tenement. Most of them were post-college, pre-childbearing types. Plus, there were some older people who probably lived on the block. Everyone seemed to have forgotten where they were headed, whether to a party or to another bar or back to bed. You will go to extremes with impossible schemes. A short, dark-haired guy in a suit stood at the top of the stoop holding a microphone. At first, I thought maybe the guy was lip-syncing. But after a few seconds, I realized he was doing the crooning himself. The guy looked a little like Sinatra, and he moved like him too. But this was no run-of-the-mill Sinatra impersonator. It was as if he was possessed by the spirit of Sinatra, channeling the chairman of the board. She gets too hungry for dinner at eight. She adores this theater, but she never arrives late. Come over here, Susan. At the bottom of the stoop was someone you would not ordinarily see with Frank Sinatra. An older woman with spiky salt and pepper hair and a leopard print vest was doing a spirited, if slightly awkward, tap dance on a piece of wood she had dragged out onto the sidewalk. She doesn't like crap games with barons and earls. Won't go dressed to a party all up in some other girl's pearls. She won't dish the dirt with the rest of those girls. That's why this chick is a champ. After my initial confusion and my subsequent bliss, my next reaction was to wonder how this was possible. Where were the cops? The Ninth Precinct is a block away, and New Yorkers are quick to complain about noise. But on 4th Street, everything was copacetic, and it still is. Somehow, by some quirk of fate, the show outside 124 East 4th Street has happened five Fridays in a row. The singer, Nick Drakitis, lives on the first floor of the building, and the tap dancer, Lorraine Goodman, lives on four. Gary and Wanda, who run the garden-level thrift shop, put their merchandise, the chairs and overstuffed couches, on the sidewalk for the audience's comfort. She never bothered with some bum that she'd hate. I said that's why Lorraine is a champ. Nick Trakitis and Lorraine Goodman are neighbors. And, like most people who live in the same building, they didn't know much about each other. Lorraine did know, however, that Nick had a big jazz record collection. Five weeks ago, Lorraine decided she wanted to tap dance in front of the building, as a sort of therapy, she says. 
and she reached out to Nick, asking him to play some tunes while she tap danced that weekend. Because what happened was, I was coming home, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I was coming home that Friday evening around 9 o'clock, and I forgot her name. And I'm walking down 4th Street from 2nd Avenue, I'm like, oh, there she is tapping, and I don't want to do this, I'm tired. I'm like, and then I had to reach for her name in my little, um, in my uh, pocket, my, uh, what's this thing, pocket day timer. And I'm like, okay, it's Lorraine. Then I walk down the street and I say, hi, Lorraine, how are you? And she goes, oh, come on out, Nick, and join me, blah, blah, blah. And I think she assumed I'll bring out some music. That was it. I don't think she was expecting, you know, a suit and microphone stand and, and, and the PA, the CDs, the cassettes, the whole number. Thanks to uh, Lorraine Goodman. This is the brains behind this wonderful event here. Okay. Say good evening, Lorraine. Good evening, Lorraine. <laughs> Nick's initial gesture of kindness to Lorraine, a near stranger, made her into a local celebrity and made himself into an even bigger one. There were only a handful of people watching Lorraine tap dance when Nick went outside with his instant Sinatra kit, which includes a few CDs from a series called Pocket Songs. The discs have the full Sinatra arrangements without a vocalist. The slogan is You Sing the Hits. Nick began with I've Got the World on a String, the crowd built steadily, and right away Nick had the crowd on a string, standing on the stoop, had the string around his finger. What a world. What a world, what a life I'm in love. I've got a song that I sing. Nick showed me a picture taken when he was 15. He's wearing a tuxedo, his hair parted to the side, standing at a microphone and pointing back at the camera. It is a picture of a 15-year-old boy from Poughkeepsie, New York, in Frank Sinatra drag. I am basically, what I'm doing right now, I have been into since I was a kid, since I was 10 years old. We've got the world on our string, and we're swinging on a rainbow. We got the string around our finger. What a world, what a life. Each of us in the audience had been lured by the improbability of the situation, but Nick's stage presence kept us there. Nick really knows how to work a room, even when it's not a room. He weaves his neighbors' names into the lyrics. Anytime he moves here, there's Brendan, our lovely neighbor here. Lucky me, hey, do Richie. Can't you see I'm in love? Life is a beautiful thing. He plugs Gary and Wanda's thrift shop and thanks them for their help. He salutes a couple watching from a nearby fire escape. Ooh. Now it's a safe bet that, if Nick and Lorraine had been breakdancing or playing conga drums, the police would have shut them down in 20 minutes tops. But the officers of the 9th Precinct fell under the same spell as the rest of us, and they couldn't bring themselves to get out of the patrol car to enforce the mayor's quality of life rules. The first week they would circle around the block you know, speak through their megaphone, you know, they would say, like, you know, people, please don't block the streets, you know, please keep the streets clear, and that was it. That was, like, the first week. The second week, they requested Summer Wind. <laughs> they requested Summer yes, Wind through the megaphone? through the megaphone as they were passing. The third week, the third week, the, the police came, and they stopped their car, held up traffic, and they said, okay, Summer Wind. They wanted to hear Summer Wind. So I, I finished Night and Day. I put Summer Wind on. And uh, I went up on the steps. 
they manipulated their lights on the top and threw a white spotlight on me, and I started singing Summer Wind. The crowd went crazy. Evidently, it's, it's, I mean, it's that, it's that, it is, it's that whole New York macho Italian police Irish street, and like evidently, what I'm doing, they connect with that. The summer wind, it came blowing in from across the sea. Of course they do. So do the black men with dreadlocks, the young white guys in Wu-Tang Clan t-shirts, the teenagers immersed in the swing lounge scene, the pot-bellied Italian men of a certain age smoking cigars, and sitting front row center wearing a party-colored muumuu, Nick's next-door neighbor Jean, who has lived at 124 East 4th Street for the last 48 years. For all of them and for me, there is something about Frank Sinatra and something about how Nick Drakitis interprets Frank Sinatra that bewitches us, that touches us. I said like painted kites Those days and nights They went flying by There's a guy who's next door and he, he, he embraced me, he hugged me. This old Chinese guy, man, with a hearing aid. I'm like, I made, I touched this guy, and I don't know how I did it, but I did it. You know? Hey, now the autumn wind and the winter winds, they have come and they have gone. For any New Yorker to do something as big as this for his neighbors again and again is more than an anomaly. It is as rare and unstable as the elements at the bottom of the periodic table. The key ingredients of this event, neighborliness, generosity, free time, good weather, cooperative police officers, are hard to come by in this city, and they are nearly impossible to find together in the same place week after week. There's a gossip columnist in the New York Post named Cindy Adams, and it is tempting to resort to her mantra, only in New York, folks, only in New York, to explain this phenomenon. But in Nick's case, the wisdom of Cindy Adams does not suffice. This is not the stuff of New York, not of the real New York, or even of the New York of a bygone era, but of a mythical movie New York, a Lower East Side block built on a studio back lot. It is the first reel of an unknown MGM musical from just after the war, and it stars Nick Trakitis. What happens in the rest of the film is anyone's guess. Strangers in the night Exchanging glances Wondering in the night What were the chances Boy Keska in New York It's quarter to three There's no one in the place Except you and me So set em up, Joe I got a little story You ought to know We're drinking, my friend To the end of a brief episode Make it one for my baby 
one more for the road Well, the original program that we did about Frank Sinatra back in 1997 that most of today's show came from was produced by Peter Clowney and Sarah Val with Louise Spiegel and Nancy Updike. Distributing editors on that show included Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, and Margie Rocklin. Lily Sullivan and Matt Tierney helped remake it into today's program. Special thanks today to Billy May, Bob Carlson, Charles Pignon, and the Sinatra Society of America. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia, who, of course, we always refer to around here as the boss, Il Padron. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Make it one for my baby And one more for the road You'd never know it, but buddy, I'm a kind of poet And I got a lot of things I'd like to say And when I'm gloomy, won't you listen to me Till it's talked away Well, that's how it goes And Joe, I know you're getting Anxious to close And thanks for the cheer I hope you didn't mind My bending your But this torch that I found's gotta be drowned Or it soon might explode So make it one for my baby And one more for the road The long That long It's long